right, well, let's give it up for Juan and the worship team. Working hard together. I know we were missing a lot of people this weekend because of the conference and Labor Day weekend. Um, it is funny how we celebrate the hard work of people by not going to work. Did I ever grab your attention before? Um, well, guys, uh, I'm very encouraged and excited to be here with everyone today. Excited for the weekend as a whole. Uh, first, before I do anything, I want to introduce, this is actually my grandfather here. This is Bob Dunham. If you guys get a chance to come meet him, he's in town. He just uh, get, got back from Vietnam. So he's actually here visiting uh, our family here for a little bit before he heads back to Texas. But I'm really grateful that he's here. This is the first time he's getting to hear me preach. So I'm, I'm grateful to have him and my mom here. But this is also a, a special weekend. Does anybody know why? Okay. So, okay, th- thank you. Okay, somebody knows my heart a little bit. Aaron loves me. A uh, couple things here. All the kids are officially in school. Like I said, it's Labor Day tomorrow, again, where we celebrate the hard work by not working. Uh, there was a brisk desert breeze this morning. Did you feel it? It was a frosty 85 degrees at 10 a.m. We were spoiled today, man. I was at Starbucks just going like, wow, this is chilly. Um, Starbucks started selling pumpkin spice lattes. And like Aaron said, it is the first full weekend of college football. So that means, that means one very important thing. It's officially fall. <laughs> this is me on the inside, even though I know that we don't have leaves like this. This is how I feel about fall. <laughs> That, that, that is my inner dog right there, because I, I, love, I love the fall. This is my favorite time of the year, but it's also uh, a very special time for my family personally, because this, this week marks one full year that we've been in the desert. And a whole lot has happened in that one year, as many of you can attest to. Uh, we have a, we have a second child now, which is crazy. You know, the, uh, the relationships we've built here, people that have moved in and moved out. It's been a very, very, uh, great year here. And, uh, and we've been really so honored to be a part of the church here in the desert. This is really, this is, this has become a very special place to us for so many different reasons. Uh, but I'm also grateful that we're, we're, uh, we're about to wrap up today our, our summer focus on faith. And all summer, we've been preaching on the heroes of Hebrews 11. And really, the, the, the point of that is, we, is we're trying to focus on what we need to learn from their faith, you know, the, these incredible men and women, and what this means to us now in the 21st century about our lives as disciples of Jesus. How do we need to be living as men and women of faith? And we've talked about the big ones that we've known really well, Abraham, Noah, Joseph, Moses, Samson. Uh, we've also talked about ones that we don't really know very well. All right, Isaac, Jacob, Gideon, Barak, and Deborah. Now, last week, Scott talked about Jephthah. I know that was kind of a fun one for us to talk through. You know, make better decisions about the commitments you make to God. Um, but from them, we've talked about a lot of different things from these men and women. We've talked about repentance, teamwork, worship, 
trusting God when we can't see uh, when we can't see the future in front of us, and so so much more. As we close the series, I know uh, Luke and Martha brought it up earlier, but we're going to discuss the topic of fear. Fear. It's a huge part of our lives. We're both terrified of it, we hate it, but we're also fascinated by it. It's a $10 billion industry for Hollywood. 28 if you include the thriller and suspense genres, but the horror genre by itself is a $10 billion genre. You know, in, in next month, we take an entire month for people to celebrate fear. Like, like, let that sink in. The entire month of October is is in honor and celebration and reverence of fear with decorations, with costumes, with paying people to make you feel fear. Right? We love watching videos of people being afraid too, don't you? We're all, we're all a little bit sick like that. I found this one. There's this uh, TV show that was very short-lived. It's called Killer Karaoke. Where the whole thing is they put people through these like challenges and they've got to keep singing no matter what. I gotta show you this. It's really funny, okay? Right now, he's probably slow dancing with a bleach blonde tramp and she's probably getting frisky. Right now, he's probably I love that video. That is so that is so funny to me. Those are the ones where they, have, where they have to keep singing as they like stick their feet and stuff. Like they have to like step in rotted fish guts, all kinds of stuff. It's hilarious. So you can look up Killer Karaoke. It'll make you laugh. Um, but when we take a step back from entertainment, the truth is that really fear is a very consuming part of our lives. It drives so many of our decisions in life. Studies are conducted regularly, like pretty much annually, about the, the role that fear plays because of this, the, the decisions that it changes in our lives. I was going to show you one that I found. I can't remember what college it was that did it. 
But as I was looking at it, I just started feeling anxious. Some of the, the top, the top ten or top five fears that we have in 2018. And the more I was reading it, the more I was just like, I just feel uncomfortable. So I just, I wasn't even going to show it to you guys. Because fear is a big, it, it's a, it's a big thing. It drives our relationships. It drives our finances. The stock market is literally, they say, it's driven by fear and greed. There's actually, if you've never played the stock market before, there's, there's something called the fear index for the stock market, where they, where they judge kind of what they think is going to happen to these companies and where the money's going to go. But that literally your whole future and your money could be determined by fear in the stock market. The food we eat. I don't know if you realize this, but Netflix documentaries are not designed to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> They're designed to make you feel fearful of pretty much everything that you eat. Uh, our futures, right? I know all the high school students, especially the, 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 the upperclassmen, thinking about colleges and where you're going to go. Jobs in the future, what, what your current life situation is. Fear has a huge decision uh, factor in, in, in what kind of job you might want to get. The places we live. Fear determines a lot about our decisions about our children. The things we want to maybe encourage them to do or not do. Fear is everywhere. You know, eight years ago, um, I was getting ready to get engaged to, to Kelsey and I just started realizing my life was, my, my, I was struggling with anxiety. And I had this time, this, this, uh, this day where I was just like, okay, what, what's going on with me here? I was, I was super like, anxious about the engagement and stuff, but, but it just kind of drew out that really that I was afraid of a lot. And so I sat down that day, and I just decided for whatever reason, and it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit, I was going to sit down and write out every single thing that I was afraid of. I spent three hours at Starbucks, writing out everything I was afraid of. For things like snakes and spiders that I just was never willing to admit to myself to the fear that I had of what kind of husband I was going to be. My fear of our future. What would our kids be like? My fear of one day, I've got this deep-rooted insecurity of, man, what if I live my whole life thinking that I'm doing things a certain way and then I get up there on Judgment Day and God goes, I never knew you. And the more that I, that I dug through these things, I realized fear has consumed my life. In a lot of ways that I wasn't really willing to admit to myself. And we're all driven by fear. Whether we realize it or not. Whether it's subconscious or completely, we're completely aware of it. And I want to show you an important scripture that even kind of sets the tone for this. Because God is aware of the role that fear plays in our lives. In 1 John 4, 18... It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, he's not talking about being afraid as, a, as an overarching name. He talks about when we, when we live our lives by fear, we're outside of what God intended for our lives. We're outside of what God meant for us to experience with him. Fear is in opposition to our faith. And today, we're going to close our series on faith by looking at the prophet Samuel. And as I was studying through the life of this man, really from even before he was ever born, till the day he died, 
And even later on, you can read the story another time, he was actually kind of called back from the dead by a medium. It's a weird scripture. But something really jumped out at me about this man, Samuel. Pretty much all of his life was used trying to help people to trust God and not give in to their own fear. So today our title is Faith Over Fear. I'm going to say a word of prayer and then we're going to jump in. God, I just really want to thank you so much for, uh, for the opportunity that we get to sit at your feet and be in your word together. I love times like this. It has been so good for our hearts to be able to study about faith and even examples of men and women that, that, that showed us what faith can look like. I pray right now, God, as we're, as we're wrapping up our time here uh, studying out these people, that you'd really help us to be humble and prepared for what you have to teach to us through the life of Samuel. We love you so much in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Point number one. Is faith in the plan. You can turn your Bible over to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Um, you know, to start, we're actually going to be looking at Samuel's mom. We're not going to get quite to Samuel just yet. Because I believe that most of what laid the foundation of who Samuel became began with his mother before he was ever born. And Hannah has a story that many in this room can relate to. Because she was a woman who wanted so badly to have children, but was unable to. And the story there, we're not going to get into the whole story of it, but is that uh, Hannah was married uh, to this man who had two wives. The other wife got, got pregnant pretty much right away and had a bunch of kids. But she had to live for many years without being able to have children. And it says not only that, but the other wife actually tormented her in the process. You can imagine what that might have been like, what she might have even said to her. Where so much of value in their culture was built up and you as a woman being able to provide a family for your husband. Just think about what, what, how this affected her self-worth, how this affected her view of God, herself, all these different things. I want you to think about what it creates when things don't go according to your plan. What happens to us when things don't go the way that we plan? Especially in big things with life. You know, we can relate to, to Hannah's story in some regards. It took, us, it took us over a year to get pregnant with Peyton. And, and we, we had this plan. We had this grand plan for how, how our family was going to go. Right? We kind of like timed it out. Like, okay, now we're going to start trying. We're probably going to get pregnant pretty quickly. And then, then, we'll have, then we'll have our kids about two years apart. We had this nice, beautiful, ribbon-wrapped version of what our family was going to be like. And then six months to a year roll by and you start going, what's wrong? Something's, something's off here. Then with Riley, it was actually a year and a half that it took us to get pregnant. And a lot of things go through your mind. A lot of things go through your heart when that happens. But this goes beyond the desires just for a family. How do you feel and react to God when things don't go how you plan? How do you tend to look at God? Whether it's your job, your finances, the school you got into or didn't get into. I was denied from the one school that I applied to that I was so confident I was going to get into. And it turned my whole world upside down. And I was bitter at God for it. Maybe when a relationship doesn't work out. Choices that loved ones made that you didn't agree with. 
So many times this happens to us in life, doesn't it? We think our plan is even good. Clearly God wants this. Clearly God says that this is how it's supposed to go. But then God goes, that's not what I had in mind. Then the fear starts setting in. Then bitterness. Then desperation. And really, Hannah could have responded like this. Her situation wasn't fair. It wasn't that she didn't want to honor God. But what happens is it says that they go to Shiloh. They go to this place where, where the priests were. They go to worship. And I want to show you what she, what she prays here. Starting in verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever ever be used on his head. I want to stop there for a moment. This is an incredible prayer. What I read in this, as you, as you see this, you see a woman that's desperate. So she's weeping bitterly as she's praying this to God. But what I see in her spirit, what I see in her communication to God is saying, God, this isn't the plan that I had for my life. But clearly your plan is different than mine. Matter of fact, if you decide to give me a child, I will forfeit my plan. I will forfeit my plan of how I want to raise my kid and I'm going to give him completely to you. For the moms out there, think about that prayer. Think about your firstborn. Think about not being able to raise them yourself. You know, when we talked about earlier this year, I don't know if you guys remember, we talked about first fruits. We did a whole sermon on on what first fruits look like. What we're talking about now is like the ultimate first fruit. This is up there with like Abraham willing to, 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 to offer Isaac to God. She's saying, God, if you give me what I want, I will let you raise him from somebody else. Because I trust you with it. I mean, she wouldn't get to experience her son growing up. That means she would have to entrust her child, to someone else that she doesn't know to raise him up in the way that God would want. What this also means is that she was going to have to trust him to Eli the priest, who later on we realized was a terrible father. Matter of fact, God condemned him because of how terrible of a father he was. And this is the guy that's going to raise her kid. What this really communicates is that Hannah wanted to have faith in God's plan more than her own. She has the baby, and she takes care of him and says, until he's weaned. We don't know how old he was, but you can imagine that was pretty young. The day that you stopped breastfeeding your child. But it says after that, she loads him up with some offerings and takes him over to Eli the priest and says, here, this is the Lord's. Now, first for a second, imagine what that must have been like for Eli. She shows up at his door and says, hey, remember me when I was praying 
a little bit ago, a couple years ago. Remember that meeting, that, that person? Well, here's the baby and you're going to raise it. You didn't know it, but this is what I was praying for. So no pressure. But I can't even imagine how difficult this must have been for her. To hand the responsibility of raising your child over to another person, let alone this guy. Later, what it actually tells us is that she would come back to Shiloh once a year. She would show back up once a year to bring her son some clothes, to, to, to make an offering to God, but to, but to visit him. What incredible faith this took. What an incredible woman she was to lay this in God's hands like this. This is nothing like what she had planned. I'm sure as she thought about her future and what it would be like when she finally had kids, this was not in the cards. But it was part of what God had planned. Little did Hannah know that it was actually God's plan to raise her son up to be the prophet and leader of his people. And God rewarded her faith. After this, it says that she actually had five children of her own. God rewarded her faith and then some. But also, let me show you what it says about Samuel. Look over in chapter 3. Verse 19. It says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all of Israel. What an incredible thing to be said about your kid. Like parents, think about that for a second. Think about if these words could be said about your children. This is everything that I could dream of for my daughters. I would love for these words to be said about my kids. But what this took for Hannah is that meant being willing to relinquish her version of her plan. This meant being willing to say, okay, God, I don't know this guy, Eli. I don't know what you're going to do with this. But if you answer this prayer, I trust that you are bigger than I am, that your plan is better than mine. So I'm going to give my child, my firstborn, and let you do with it as you will. You think this had an effect on Samuel? You think this didn't set a tone for what kind of man he was going to be going forward, even as a baby? The truth of this is that God will always reward trusting his plan over your own. Consider the ways that this kind of faith would change our lives. Think about how this would affect your parenting if this is where your faith was for your plan for your kids. High school students, think about how this kind of faith, deciding to maybe choose Jesus over the high school experience, which the rest of the world tells you this is how it's supposed to be, you choosing Jesus over that Think of how God can reward that. 
Think of how this can affect your job. You say, God, this is, this is the kind of job maybe I was hoping for. This is the kind of money I was hoping to make. But you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to choose something that is going to allow me to, to give my best to you, no matter what that money is. How will God honor our lives when we choose to trust his plan over our own? Point number two. Faith in the process. So it says, Samuel grows up, he becomes the prophet, the priest, and the leader of all Israel. And there's so much to say about this. There's like 18 chapters written about this guy's life. You've got to study it on your own. We're not going to be able to cover that much. But what ends up happening here is he anoints, he anoints Saul as king because of the people's requests. And I don't really even have time to dive into this side of it, but that, that alone is its own story. The people are, are clamoring for a king. They say, Samuel, give us a king so that we can be like the rest of the people around us. And Samuel delivers some incredibly powerful words to him. He says, look, you are rejecting God as your king because you're asking for this. But God says, you know, go ahead and do it. So Saul becomes king. And he starts going to war with the Philistines. And he has a lot of success at first. He's actually a really good king on the front end. He's winning some battles. He's really trying to honor God. He's been faithful until one battle in particular. Oh, sorry. Let's go to chapter 13. Sorry, I was clicking ahead of myself. It says, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth When the Israelites saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days for the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were now assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. We'll stop there. So it says that they're getting ready to fight this battle with the Philistines. And Saul, in, in good spirit, says he wants to make sure that they're seeking God's favor. This is a good thing to do. If you're going to battle, you want to make sure God's on your team and, you know, helping you guys to win the war. So Samuel tells him, he says, okay, I want you guys to wait there for seven days. I'm coming. We'll make this offering to God. You guys will go to war. It's going to be awesome. But Samuel was the priest. So that meant biblically he was the only one with the authority to make the kind of offering that they were, that they were trying to make to God. 
So during those seven days, the soldiers are watching as thousands and thousands of Philistines are pouring into their area. It says thousands of charioteers and so many soldiers that there's like too many to count. So you can imagine what you might be feeling if you were a soldier in the Israelite army. Be freaking out a little bit. And on the seventh day, he said, by this time, the soldiers are so freaking out, some of them are hiding in caves somewhere. Other people just dip and they're just like, I can't even do this. I'm out of here. So naturally, you as the leader, as Saul, would be freaking out too. Not only am I having to deal with these people, my soldiers won't even stick around. So what does he do? He panics. And he says, okay, I want you to go ahead and give me the stuff. And I'll make the offering myself. But this was a huge problem. This is up there with entering into the Holy of Holies or touching, touching the Ark of the Covenant in a way that dishonored God. Saul wasn't purified. Saul wasn't cleansed. He did not have the authority or the right to go before God with this kind of an offering. So this good thing, and this is all coming from a place of Saul saying, I want to have victory. I want to seek the Lord's favor. So he's trying to do something that he thought would help. This good thing that Saul wanted to do was messed up because he disobeyed what God said out of fear. And what it says is that as he's finishing up the offering, the offering, offering, the offering says Samuel shows up. Imagine what you would feel if you were Saul, if you did this offering knowing you weren't supposed to, and as you're done, you see the prophet coming. The panic, the, 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 uh, busted. There's like, like, everything would, like, I would just want to die at that moment. Right? And that's pretty much what he does. It says that he runs out to meet him. Like, hey, Sammy, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? We don't know over here. Like, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Glad you're, glad you're here. Let's do this offering. And the results of this were catastrophic. This, this thing that Saul did in good intention cost him everything. I'm going to read verse 13 and 14 again. Says you've kept the com- you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have est- he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart and appointed him ruler of His people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Basically, Samuel said, "Look, God wanted to give you this, but because you gave in to fear and you did what dishonored God." He's taken everything from you. This thing that Saul meant to honor God became his undoing. And it ruined his future. Rather than just waiting and trusting God with obedience. I almost called this point, trust God's timing. If he had just waited, we don't know how long the offering took, Maybe it was an hour. Maybe it was 30 minutes. If he had just waited and done what he knew was right, Samuel would have showed up. 
But the part that sticks out to me the most, this is, this is, this is something that, like, that haunts me, is in verse 12 it says, Saul said, I felt compelled. It says, look, when I, when I saw that the men were leaving, when, when, when you took longer than I thought, I felt that this was right. I felt that this would please God. And this is a heavy point for us to discuss together. Because oftentimes our undoing, it's not coming from a place of direct rebellion to God. But from fear of our circumstances and trusting our version of what God wants. Too often what happens is we look at the circumstances of our lives and instead of, instead of stepping back and praying, instead of holding fast to the truth of God's word, instead of walking on the course of obedience, we fudge the truth and righteousness to fit how we feel and fit the moment. We want God's truth to fit our circumstances. I I know the Bible says to forgive whatever grievances, but this person really hurt my feelings. And I don't want to talk to them. I know the Bible says I'm supposed to submit to my husband or husbands that I've got to love my wife as Christ loved the church, but they're not loving me or respecting me the way that I want. Yeah, I know the Bible says to give faithfully and first to God, but I don't make much money and I've got other financial commitments. Yeah, I know I need to be devoted to one another and not give up meeting together, but my kid is on a club team or they've got homework to do during midweek. Or my boss asked me to come in. Yeah, I know the Bible says to obey my parents and to honor them, but they treat me like a child. And they don't let me do what I want. And it may not be as dramatic as any of this. And I'm just going to tell you, saying these things gives me a pit in my stomach. But think about how many times we do things with good intentions, maybe even thinking that what we're doing is honoring God or that he'll understand. And all the while, we don't realize the devastating impact that those choices are making because we aren't just doing what God says to do. It's usually not as complicated as we make it. lost my place here for a second, sorry. I'm say anxiety from what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I tell my wife all the time, and it drives her crazy. When I hurt her feelings, I tell her that wasn't my intention. Any husbands relate to that stupidity? <laughs> you know, she says, she says, what you did, how you said that, your tone, whatever, that hurt my feelings. I say, well, I'm sorry, that wasn't my intention. But that buries me. Because the intention doesn't matter. It's what I did. I got in a fight with my wife about that this week. I know that that hurts her even more. I know that that makes things worse. And yet I still can't seem to get away from it sometimes. 
But yeah, this is how we are with God. Well, God, that wasn't my intention. I meant this to honor you. And I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not trying to condemn anyone here. And I hope you don't feel that. And I'm not trying to say there aren't even unique circumstances with some of these things. But what I do want us to do is some self-evaluation. Are you being driven by fear in your walk with God and in your life? Or are you being driven by faith? We have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with that. If that's determining our decisions, you're not honoring God and you're not obeying Him. Forget unique circumstances. Is that what drives you? Are you living your life by trusting God's process rather than your own? Because I hate to break it to you, but honoring God is not determined by our feelings or our circumstances. And if this is making you feel a bit uncomfortable, that's probably good. I feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable from my walk with God. I feel uncomfortable standing in front of you and saying these things. But you know, the truth is, I don't think Samuel's talk with Saul here was a very comfortable one. I don't think this filled Samuel's heart with joy to tell this man, your life is ruined because of your decisions. And God will not honor you anymore. But my goal is not to leave us feeling defeated and hopeless. Amen? But to get us to think more faithfully. I want to reread the first part of verse 13 here. Because he says, he says, you've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom for Israel, over Israel for all time. If you had, if you had trusted God's process, this is what he wanted to do for you. Now I want you to take any of those examples that I just brought up a moment ago. Talking about your marriage, forgiveness, your finances, whatever it may be. And I want you to think for a moment about what God will do if you act faithfully and trust God's process with each of those things. If instead of making a decision based on fear, you make it on faith and say, okay, I'm going to honor God anyway, even though financially this doesn't necessarily make the most sense. Or I'm going to honor my wife as Christ loved the church, even though right now I feel like she's being a punk and she's not respecting me. If I will treat her as Christ loved the church, what will he do? Because that's really, that's that's part of the the sorrow of this story, but part of the hope for us in this. Is God never just says, just do what I tell you and hope it works out for the best. He says, no, if you do these things, I want to bless it. I want to make this awesome. I want your finances to be great. I want your marriage to be awesome. I want your future and what college you go to to be great. I want all these things to be awesome. But you have to do it my way. What would he do to our finances? How would this affect our children? How would this affect our future? Or better yet, how would this affect our day-to-day anxiety? 
in any circumstance. Instead, we just go, okay, you know what, God? I got faith in your process, and I'm just going to do what you say. You know, it doesn't make sense to me. It hurts a little bit, and I'm annoyed by it. I'm going to do it anyways. But now I want you to think about you, because maybe none of these things apply to where you're at. Maybe none of this dictates your situation. What will happen... Oh, here you go. This is a better question. What is the area or the areas of your life where you tend to be led by fear over faith? What is that part of your life that your decisions tend to be more based on what you're afraid of than what you trust God to do? And then again, I'll ask that same question. What will happen in that area of your life if you will trust God's process and do what the Bible says about it? What would be different? If you're not sure what this looks like, if you're not sure what the Bible says about this, just talk to someone. We've got a lot of incredible men and women here that love Jesus and know their Bibles. They would, sure, they would be happy to share a scripture with you that could help you with your obedience. And in the spirit of this, I want to close with a scripture. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to show it up on the screen here in a second. But you know, As the Hebrews were leaving, were leaving Egypt... They're being pursued by Pharaoh and, they're, and they get up to the Red Sea. So they've got this wall of water, nowhere to go, in front of them. And behind them, they've got Egyptians that are looking to kill them. Moses decided in that moment, I love this scripture, in that moment, he stood in front of these millions of people, quiets the crowd as they're panicking. And he says some powerful words. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. God has got this. Just shut up and do what he says. Calm yourselves. Quit freaking out. He's going to take care of it. That next moment, he did something that never has been done since. Split a sea so that they could walk through it. He made a way where there was no way. In our lives right now, in our walk with God, we often find ourselves in a place like this. Where our circumstances don't feel awesome. You know, 2 Corinthians 4 talks about we're hard pressed on every side. And I look in front of me, I got the Red Sea, I look behind me, I got the Egyptians. I look in front of me and I see debt. I look behind me and my kids are struggling. You know, every which way of life, it feels like it's all falling apart. Not sure what to do. We're feeling the weight of life and circumstances. But in our hearts, we want to trust God. These moments are maybe the most important moments of our lives and our walk with God. Where we have a choice. Do I give in to the fear? Do I make decisions based on what I feel? Or am I faithful to God's plan and God's process? I, always, I like doing this at the end of every sermon, but I want you to imagine, just with the people in this room, what would happen if we were men and women that were more led by faith rather than fear? 
the difference in our spirit, the difference of the people that we would help. And this is a high calling for all of us. And you know what? I'm not there. I would love to tell you that as I was writing this, I was like, man, I have arrived, God, and I got this figured out. We're in the mud together. Boy, this is a good time. At the end of this summer, as we're looking at our faith and where we've been at, it's a good time for us to do a self-evaluation and go, where is my faith now? Where is my faith over this big thing in my life? Where is my faith just in general? And how can I trust God going forward? We're going to be changing our focus here in the fall as a church that we really want to be outward focused. We really want to go into the city, go into the valley, to go, to go reach out to the lost people of this area. But as we do that, let's make sure that we're not being led by fear, but we're being led by faith. Amen. Love you all.